Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 144. I'm so tired. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And the Craftlet Knitty and Holiday Travels Tour to London, Bath, and Wales, Fall 2010. That's October 2nd through October 10th. I am so excited. I can barely contain myself. I hope, I hope, I hope you are all signing up at least, at the very least, for the information um, that will be doled out if anything changes. But as of today, which is September 15th, 2009, as of today, tickets will go on sale at 10 o'clock Central Time on September 30th. Now, one of the reasons why we've had to pick kind of an, an arbitrary time is because this podcast is international. There are instructions now on the brochure, and I think they're also on the website, that will tell you if you are out of the continental U.S., email Diane now because she has arrangements made in her magical world that will work. As far as I know, September 30th, 10 a.m., the tickets go on sale. Now, again, you don't have to pay for the whole thing right up front, you know, it's a little deposit, it's a little reservation, nothing is set in stone. So, you know, if you think you might be able to save the money, or you want to win the lottery, or you're hoping that you get a lot of goods at Christmas time, whatever it is, you know, if you just want to make sure that a space is saved for you, go ahead and call Diane at 10 o'clock on September 30th. There will be plenty of people available to answer the phone. It's not going to be Diane alone who's handling all these calls. So don't start to feel like, oh, well, I shouldn't call right at 10 because everybody's going to call right at 10. It's a 1-800 number. Easy peasy. And, um, and oh, gosh, I hope you all come. I'm so excited. I get to meet more of you all in one place. Yay! So I, my title today is, is both... I am so tired. I don't know what happened today. All of a sudden, I just, it was right after class. I was dizzy. I couldn't eat. I was really sleepy. And it's not, I'm not feverish. I'm not fluish. I was just overcome with tired. So that was both a nod to my present state and also to the fact that this week the Beatles CDs came out all digitized and prettified and everything, and I so am not going to be able to afford to buy those. But when I walked into, I think it was Borders Bookstore on the day that the CDs were released, it was all Beatles the whole time I was in there. And it was so nice, you know, and they were playing a nice mix between the the older Beatle music, um, the, the kind of more simple, just guitar and voice music, and then um, some of the later Sgt. Peppery rubber sole kind of stuff, which was fun. It was just fun to get to hear all the different varieties of music that these guys created. And of course, it's just horrifying when you think about how young they were by the time they broke up. <laughs> Had they even hit 30 by the time they all, you know, peaked and broke up and went their separate ways? It's a little unnerving. But 
but love the music. Always good. For those of you who are new to Craftlit, if you go to craftlit.com on our website, you will see a bunch of different things. One of the things you'll see is a little explanatory in the right-hand column that tells you what Craftlit is and what it's about. You'll also find links across the top to our library. From the library, you can download all of the previous episodes, and I'm working kind of slowly but surely to add links to all the show notes from there as well, so you can get the MP3 files separately and go to the show notes very easy uh, you can go to itunes and download well heck you can download the whole show if you want 144 episodes those of you who've been listening with me for a long time it's 144 long time i am blown away i wrote the number down today and said really wow the other thing to know for those of you who are new is if you really are not excited at the thought of downloading 144 episodes but you see that there is a book in our past that we have um, covered and you want to listen feel free to go to the craftlet.com website and you'll see a cds and tees link from that link you can find out about how to get what would madame defarge knit t-shirts and the hot men of craftlet t-shirt and cds of all of the book compilations i compiled them all into cds it's like three cds for little women and two or three it's three cds for pride and prejudice um they're mp3 file cds that means they can only be played on a computer or taken from the cd via your computer and dragged onto an mp3 player doesn't have to be an ipod so that's what's out there available for you I hope that's good. I want to very early on give a shout out to our good friend of the show, Jenny the Potter. You can go visit her site at jennythepotter.com for some of the most wonderful and yarnalicious pottery that's out there. Her mugs, her mugs alone are to die for. Every night I knit out of her knitting bowl, one of the little yarn bowls that she made. I got the small size and that has been good for me. Um, But then I'm using a lot of lace weight cashmere stuff right now for my sister's wedding shawl, so... I could do with the little yarn ball. If I was doing something bigger, mm, I'd probably want to buy the bigger one. But the reason I'm giving a shout out is because Jenny the Potter's a mommy. She's a mommy. It's so exciting. So she and her husband just had their baby. All is well. And and still, even still, you'll be able to see her at Rhinebeck <laughs> with a bunch of uh, people who you are familiar with. Meg, of the March Hare, who is part of the host of the 2009 Craftlet Challenge, which we'll talk about in a minute, and uh, I think Dawn of Crochet Compulsive, she's going to write me and tell me, no, I'm not going, or yes, I am. I have no idea if I'll be able to make it. I'm hoping I can, and if I can, I will be at the Jenny the Potter stall. She doesn't even know that yet, but she's also not listening because she has a new baby. So, that's all very exciting news, and we're all happy, happy, happy. 2009 Craft Lit March Hare Challenge is still open. It's open until we finish the book. The idea and these instructions are at craftlit.com, because I'm going to just give you the quick and dirty overview. Uh, Design something that incorporates a scarlet letter into it. Design something with yarn-ish stuff that incorporates a scarlet letter and send in your jpegs and your name and your information as per the website and you will be entered into the craftlet challenge you win 
a bunch of different stuff. In fact, there are some things percolating in the background right now that would be even more fantabuluser for you should you win the challenge. So, I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Get your entries in. Along with entries, we have incentives for this month, the month of September 2009. We have the Fabricate book, 17 innovative sewing projects that make fabric the star. We have, I have decided to part with, (laughs) because I am a generous and kind person, we have decided to part with some gorgeous stitch markers handmade by Joy Lynn in Massachusetts. And I think one of her book beads, bookmarks. I have been using these bookmarks, by the way. Wow. They really do. They lodge in my book. I have not lost my place yet. And that is not true for me and other bookmarks. Probably because my children come and, you know, flip through everything I own. Including, I just went into the craft room, the craft room that still has carpet, and saw the puddle, uh, actual puddle of... (laughs) paint paint from my five and a half year old puddle of paint on the carpet I haven't cleaned it up because I kind of want to show him and and I don't know what I'm going to do after that if I had money I'd rip up the carpet and do something to the floor but it's fairly expensive to tile 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 in um, like Mexican tile something that wouldn't look funny in the house we're very limited here people are doing polished concrete I guess and saltio tile but other tiles really do kind of look funny in the desert which is unfortunate but you know that's the difficulty of having a craft room with carpet something I'm sure many of you can empathize with I also I have to clean up that craft room since I came back from sock summit you know everything kind of went bananas in the room when I was packing for Sock Summit. And then I come back and I have my big teaching box that followed me back via UPS. And now I, I, I have to put things away. And there really isn't anywhere to put them. So it's, it's kind of like, you know those little puzzles, the little square ones that have three or four pieces uh, up and down side by side creates a square and you have one square missing so you can slide the pieces around and you're trying to make, I don't know, a picture of a panda. That's kind of how that room feels to me right now. And I look at those magazines, you know, like Studio, and everybody's come up with really clever ideas. And I look at this room and think, it also has to do as a guest room. So there has to be a bed. And right now it's a trundle bed. And it's a small room, but it still means that you have to be able to, at some point, pull out the trundle bed. And I'm just, I'm just at a loss. I am not sure what to do with all this stuff. I've already started putting shelves on the walls, but it just doesn't seem like there's enough shelving in the world for this room. Plus, most of this stuff is kind of heavy, like scrapbooking supplies and stuff. It's kind of heavy, and you want access. So you want easy access, so I don't know. What I need is a room that has nothing but hooks on the wall, so I can just hang up everything. Because if it's there and it's hanging, I'll see it. I'll see it, I'll use it, it'll be great. If it's in a drawer that's closed, (laughs) it doesn't exist. Oh well, c'est la guerre. The other thing we have going for us this month on the incentive side of things is Mission Falls. Mission Falls is going to donate one of their 136 Merino kits to a Craftlet listener who donates this month, which is way cool. 
Um, there are, I'm going to put up two links to the Mission Falls website so you can go and see what kind of things are available. I get to pick the kit and I'll tell you right now I'm waffling between two different ideas but I'm not going to tell you which. Not until the next podcast. But once you look, oh my goodness, the the stuff that's on these, I'm looking at them right now, the stuff that's on the Mission Falls site, beautiful patterns. And some of them are just breathtaking. But um, I'm going to pick something good, I promise. And and then a lucky winner will get that. And again, when you donate on PayPal, you can usually write a little note. Let me know if you are a sewer, if you are more interested in the Fabricate book than you would be in the Mission Falls uh, kit. Because I, you know, I would hate to for you to get an incentive prize that really isn't going to do you any good. That would be awful. So, you know, just give me a heads up. I'm a sewer. I'm a knitter. The end. It's good. So, very exciting about the Mission Falls people, the good people of Mission Falls. And the other thing, this is all coming to us through Irish Knitting Girl. This is Jessica. And Jessica works for... Uh, Mission Falls. The, just so you know, the 136 Superwash Merino, it's 136 yards per 50 gram ball. It's a DK sport weight. And this is the stuff, I think I've mentioned it before, that I knit my softest, most fabulous socks out of. So looking at the sweater patterns that are available with the 136 attached, I am very excited because I know, I know how soft these sweaters will be. You will be a lucky, lucky person. So that's very exciting. On the crafty side of things, I think I mentioned that I was going to go on a uh, drawing class adventure with Thing One. He and I spent from three o'clock in the afternoon until after nine o'clock at night down at the drawing studio in Tucson, Arizona, which is a wonderful public outreach art center place where they do a lot of outreach to seniors and to kids to teach them how to draw and to not fear drawing. And they also have really wonderful classes with some extraordinarily talented people. So what they did is they had four classes that were a little over an hour and they had four different teachers come in so you could kind of experience the teachers. My son and I definitely bonded with one of the teachers. He happens to teach some classes up by our house, which is even more better -er. And I think my son had this massive breakthrough with drawing. You know, he's not he's not very sturdy when it comes to handwriting and he hasn't been very confident when it comes to drawing. But this kid nails perspective. And you know, eventually we had to draw there was a a kind of a rectangular pedestal and they balanced a ball on it and then they shot light from one direction, one specific direction so you could draw shadow and shape and all that stuff. And he just he just went out of control, overboard. I've never seen him work so hard at anything. He worked on a drawing for an hour and 15 minutes. He's nine. <laughs> it was wonderful. So that was a big hit. And that was free. The classes aren't. But um, eventually, someday, if I can save up money, we will go take a drawing class together. Which, you know, that's pretty special to be able to do that with your kids. And I know, because I hear from some of you that you've done the same thing and had a wonderful time. So, yay! Yay, having an opportunity to do something like that, which is rare. I am making progress on the wedding shawl. Wedding shawl for my sister. Wedding is in early December. I also have to get ordained. 
I don't know if I told you this. My sister has asked me to officiate with my husband, and we have to find some way to get ordained. So I think it's going to be, you know, something online, but we will be performing my sister's ceremony. And now, obviously, they will be going through the justice of the peace as far as their legal documentation goes. But my husband and I are really having a wonderful time writing the service. We've, we've you know, pulled from lots of different services that we've found. And my sister and her fiancé are rather unique people. So we are trying to make it rather unique. And I'm just very excited. It's really a nice thing to be able to do with your husband, you know? like oh yeah I remember why I married you because I agree with all this stuff it's just it's just nice especially when you're reading a book like the scarlet letter harumph (laughs) one of the local knitting store owners here at the Tucson yarn company uh, recently listened to a podcast and said yes I do like your segues (laughs) so here's a new segue the scarlet letter golly yeah this is um this is getting down to it, isn't it? We're, we're heading definitely down that last slope of the roller coaster. So when last we saw Hester and Dimsdale uh, and Pearl, they were in the nature, uh, out in the woods. There was a brook that was dividing them. Pearl was not happy seeing her mother with her hair down or her cap off or the scarlet letter off of her chest and didn't seem particularly excited about Dimsdale hanging around. Pearl, being a force of nature, is definitely someone to listen to, especially when the context is that they are in nature. So that's kind of a foreshadowing thing for all of us. And this was uh, one of the few chapters that I, I couldn't find the audio for. So if someone sent it in, I have lost it, Um, and I'm going to just go ahead and read the book today, so I owe you a chapter, is what it comes down to. I I apologize for that. It's, I have not found a good organizational system since I have three computers that I use at different times, and the time, the length of time that you have to download um, one of these files is not a lot. So I'm, I'm working on another better solution for our future. Uh, and I think, I think that'll all work out with, um, not the next book. The next book I think we're going to do is Flatland. It's very short and that'll be read if all goes according to plan by my father. And then, you know, we'll talk about what to do next. There are so many options. So, so many options. But today's chapter is called The Minister in a Maze. And not surprisingly, the title is indicative of what's going on in Dimsdale's mind. Um, But there's also... This is one of Hawthorne's chapters that is just drenched in irony. And sometimes... You think Dimsdale might get the ironic thing, but most of the time it's just us. We're, we're the ones who understand where the irony is, and I think that's true pretty much all the way through the chapter. So there are a couple of things that I don't want to spoil for you uh, before we get to them. So I'm going to read you the chapter, and then I'll talk to you again at the end, and that'll be good. Any questions? <laughs> I've been saying that all day today. I was teaching uh, 
teaching this morning and, and afternoon. And it was one of those days where I had to give some instructions. And <laughs> I kept saying, anyone have any questions? And it's so early in the morning, everybody's just looking at me like they're sleepwalking. So eventually they started to talk, but it, it was something that I've said a considerable number of times in one 10 hour period. So here we are, chapter 20, The Minister in a Maze. As the minister departed, in advance of Hester Prynne and Little Pearl, he threw a backward glance, half expecting that he should discover only some faintly traced features or outline of the mother and child slowly fading into the twilight of the woods. So great a vicissitude in his life could not at once be received as real. But there was Hester, clad in her gray robe, still standing beside the tree trunk, which some blast had overthrown a long antiquity ago and which time had ever since been covering with moss, so that these two fated ones, with earth's heaviest burden on them, might there sit down together and find a single hour's rest and solace. And there was Pearl, too, lightly dancing from the margin of the brook, now that the intrusive third person was gone, and taking her old place by her mother's side, so the minister had not fallen asleep and dreamed. In order to free his mind from this indistinctness and duplicity of impression which vexed it with a strange disquietude, he recalled and more thoroughly defined the plans which Hester and himself had sketched for their departure. It had been determined between them that the old world, with its crowds and cities, offered them a more eligible shelter and concealment than the wilds of New England or All-America, with its alternatives of an Indian wigwam or the few settlements of Europeans scattered thinly along the seaboard. Not to speak of the clergyman's health, so inadequate to sustain the hardships of a forest life, his native gifts, his culture, and his entire development would secure him a home only in the midst of civilization and refinement. The more delicate the state, the more highly adapted to it the man. In furtherance of his choice, it so happened that a ship lay in the harbor, one of those questionable cruisers, frequent that day, which, without being absolutely outlaws of the deep, yet roamed over its surface with a remarkable irresponsibility of character. This vessel had recently arrived from the Spanish main, and, within three days' time, would sail for Bristol. Hester Prynne, whose vocation as a self-enlisted sister of charity, had brought her acquainted with the captain of the crew, could take upon herself to secure the passage of two individuals and a child, with all the secrecy which circumstances rendered more than desirable. The minister had inquired of Hester, with no little interest, the precise time at which the vessel might be expected to depart. It would probably be on the fourth day from the present. That is most fortunate, he had then said to himself. Now why the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale considered it so very fortunate, we hesitate to reveal. Nevertheless, to hold nothing back from the reader, it was because on the third day from the present, he was to preach the election sermon. And as such an occasion formed an honorable epoch of the life of New England clergymen, he could not have chanced upon a more suitable mode and time of terminating his professional career. At least they shall say of me, thought this exemplary man, that I leave no public duty unperformed nor ill-performed. Sad, indeed, that an introspection so profound and acute as this poor minister's should be so miserably deceived. 
We have had, and may still have, worse things to tell of him, but none we apprehend so pitiably weak, no evidence at once so slight and irrefragable of a subtle disease that had long since begun to eat into the real substance of his character. No man, for any considerable period, can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. The excitement of Mr. Dimsdale's feelings as he returned from his interview with Hester lent him unaccustomed physical energy and hurried him townward at a rapid pace. The pathway along the wood seemed wilder, more uncouth, with its rude natural obstacles and less trodden by the foot of man than he remembered it on his outward journey. But he leapt across the plashy places, thrust himself through the clinging underbrush, climbed the ascent, plunged into the hollow, and overcame, in short, all the difficulties of the track, with an unweariable activity that astonished him. He could not but recall how feebly and with what frequent pauses for breath he had toiled over the same ground only two days before. As he drew near the town, he took an impression of change from the series of familiar objects that presented themselves. It seemed not yesterday, not one nor two, but many days, or even years ago, since he had quitted them. There, indeed, was each former trace of the street as he remembered it, and all the peculiarities of the houses, with the due multitude of gable peaks and a weathercock at every point where his memory suggested one. Not the less, however, came this importunately obtrusive sense of change. The same was true as regarded the acquaintances of whom he met, and all the well-known shapes of human life about the little town. They looked neither older nor younger now. The beards of the aged were no whiter, nor could the creeping babe of yesterday walk on his feet today. It was impossible to, to describe in what respect they differed from the individuals on whom he had so recently bestowed a parting glance. And yet, the minister's deepest sense seemed to inform him of their mutability. A similar impression struck him most remarkably as he passed under the walls of his own church. The edifice had so very strange and yet so familiar an aspect that Mr. Dimsdale's mind vibrated between two ideas, either that he had seen it only in a dream hitherto, or that he was merely dreaming about it now. This phenomenon, in the various shapes which it assumed, indicated no external change, but so sudden and important a change in the spectator of the familiar scene, that the intervening space of a single day had operated on his consciousness like the lapse of years. The minister's own will, and Hester's will, and the fate that grew between them, had wrought this transformation. It was the same town as heretofore, but the same minister returned not from the forest. He might have said to his friends who greeted him, I am not the man for whom you take me. I left him yonder in the forest, withdrawn into a secret dell by a mossy tree trunk and near a melancholy brook. Go seek your minister, and see if his emaciated figure, his thin cheek, his white, heavy, pain-wrinkled brow be not flung down there like a cast-off garment." His friends, no doubt, would still have insisted with him, Thou art thyself this man. But the error would have been their own, not his. 
Before Mr. Dimsdale reached home, his inner man gave him other evidences of a revolution in the sphere of thought and feeling. In truth, nothing short of a total change of dynasty and moral code in that interior kingdom was adequate to account for the impulses now communicated to the unfortunate and startled minister. At every step he was incited to do some strange, wild, wicked thing or another, with the sense that it would be at once involuntary and intentional. In spite of himself, yet growing out of a profounder self than that which opposed the impulse. For instance, he met one of his own deacons. The good old man addressed him with the paternal affection and patriarchal privilege which his venerable age, his upright and holy character, and his station in the church entitled him to use. And, conjoined with this, the deep, almost worshipping respect which the minister's professional and private claims alike demanded. Never was there a more beautiful example of how the majesty of age and wisdom may comport with the obeisance and respect enjoined about it as from a lower social rank and inferior order of endowment towards a higher. Now, during a conversation of some two or three moments between the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale and this excellent and hoary-bearded deacon, it was only by the most careful self-control that the former could refrain from uttering certain blasphemous suggestions that rose into his mind respecting the communion supper. He absolutely trembled and turned pale as ashes lest his tongue should wag itself in utterance of these horrible matters and plead his own consent for so doing without having fairly given it. And even with this terror in his heart, he could hardly avoid laughing to imagine how the sanctified old patriarchal deacon would have been petrified by this minister's impiety. Again, on another incident of the same nature, hurrying along the street, the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale encountered the eldest female member of his church, a most pious and exemplary old dame, poor, widowed, lonely, and with a heart as full of reminiscences about her dead husband and children and her dead friends of long ago, as a burial ground is full of storied gravestones. Yet all this, which would else have been such heavy sorrow, was made almost a solemn joy to her devout old soul by religious consolations and the truths of Scripture, wherewith she had fed herself continually for more than thirty years. And since Mr. Dimsdale had taken her in charge, the good granddam's chief earthly comfort which, unless it had been likewise a heavenly comfort, could have been none at all, was to meet her pastor, whether casually or of a set purpose, and be refreshed with a word of warm, fragrant, heaven-breathing gospel truth from his beloved lips into her dulled but rapturously attentive ear. But on this occasion, up to the moment of putting his lips to the old woman's ear, Mr. Dimsdale as the great enemy of souls would have it, could recall no text of scripture, nor aught else except a brief pithy and, as it then appeared to him, unanswerable argument against the immortality of the human soul. The instillment thereof into her mind would probably have caused this aged sister to drop down dead at once, as by the effect of an intensely poisonous infusion. What he really did whisper, the minister could never afterwards recollect, there was perhaps a fortune disorder in his utterance which failed to impart any distinct idea to the good widow's comprehension, or which providence interpreted after a method of its own. Assuredly, 
As the minister looked back, he beheld an expression of divine gratitude and ecstasy that seemed like the shine of the celestial city on her face, so wrinkled and ashy pale. Again, a third instance. After parting from the old church member, he met the youngest sister of them all. It was a maiden newly won, and won by the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale's own sermon on the Sabbath after his vigil, to barter the transitory pleasures of the world for the heavenly hope that was to assume brighter substance as life grew dark around her, and which would gild the utter gloom with final glory. She was fair and pure as a lily that had bloomed in paradise. The minister knew well that he was himself enshrined within the stainless sanctity of her heart, which hung its snowy curtains about his image, imparting to religion the warmth of love, and to love a religious purity. Satan, that afternoon, had surely led the poor young girl away from her mother's side, and thrown her into the pathway of this sorely tempted, or, shall we not rather say, this lost and desperate man. As she drew nigh, the arch-fiend whispered him to condense into small compass and drop into her tender bosom a germ of evil that would be sure to blossom darkly soon and bear black fruit betimes. Such was his sense of power over this virgin soul, trusting him as she did, that the minister felt potent to blight all the field of innocence with but one wicked look and develop all its opposite with but one word. So, with a mightier struggle than he had yet sustained, he held his Geneva cloak before his face and hurried onward, making no sign of recognition and leaving the young sister to digest his rudeness as she might. She ransacked her conscience, which was full of harmless little matters like her pocket or her work bag, and took herself to task, poor thing, for a thousand imaginary faults and went about her household duties with swollen eyelids the next morning. Before the minister had time to celebrate his victory over this last temptation, he was conscious of another impulse, more ludicrous and almost as horrible. It was, we blush to tell it, it was to stop short on the road and teach some very wicked words to a knot of little Puritan children who were playing there and had but just begun to talk. Denying himself this freak as unworthy of his cloth, he met a drunken seaman one of the ship's crew from the Spanish main. And here, since he had so valiantly forborne all other wickedness, poor Mr. Dimsdale longed at least to shake hands with the tarry blackguard and recreate himself with a few improper jests, such as dissolute sailors so abound with, and a volley of good, round, solid, satisfactory, and heaven-defying oaths. It was not so much a better principle as partly his natural good taste, and still more his buck-rammed habit of clerical decorum that carried him safely through this latter crisis. "'What is it that haunts and tempts me thus?' cried the minister to himself, at length pausing in the street, and striking his hand against his forehead. "'Am I mad, or am I given over utterly to the fiend? Did I make a contract with him in the forest and sign it with my blood? And does he now summon me to its fulfillment by suggesting the performance of every wickedness which his most foul imagination can conceive? At the moment when the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale thus communed with himself and struck his forehead with his hand, old Mistress Hibbins, the reputed witch lady, is said to have been passing by. She made a very grand appearance, having on a high headdress, a rich gown of velvet, and a ruff 
done up with the famous yellow starch of which Anne Turner, her especial friend, had taught her the secret before this last good lady had been hanged for Sir Thomas Overbury's murder. Whether the witch had read the minister's thoughts or no, she came to a full stop, looked shrewdly into his face, smiled craftily, and, though little given to converse with clergymen, began a conversation. "'So, Reverend Sir, you have made a visit into the forest.' observed the witch lady, nodding her high headdress at him. The next time I pray you will allow me to only a fair warning, and I shall be proud to bear you company. Without taking over much upon myself, my good word will go far towards gaining any strange gentleman a fair reception from yonder potentate you wot of. I profess, madam, answered the clergyman with a grave obeisance, much as the lady's rank demanded, and his own good breeding made imperative. I profess on my conscience and character that I am utterly bewildered as touching the purport of your words. I went not into the forest to seek a potentate. Neither do I at any future time deign a visit thither, with a view to gaining the favor of such a personage. My one sufficient object was to greet that pious friend of mine, the Apostle Eliot, and rejoice with him over the many precious souls he hath won from heathendom. <laughs> "'Keckled the old witch-lady, still nodding her high headdress at the minister. "'Well, well, we must needs talk thus in the daytime. "'You carry it off like an old hand, but at midnight, and in the forest, "'we shall have other talk together.' "'She passed on with her aged stateliness, "'but often turning back her head and smiling at him, "'like one willing to recognize the secret intimacy of a connection. "'Have I then sold myself?' thought the minister, to the fiend whom, if men say true, this yellow-starched and velveted old hag has chosen for her prince and master? The wretched minister. He had made a bargain very like it, tempted by a dream of happiness. He had yielded himself with deliberate choice, as he had never done before, to what he knew was a deadly sin and the infectious poison of that sin had been thus rapidly diffused throughout his moral system. It had stupefied all blessed impulses and awakened into vivid life the whole brotherhood of bad ones. Scorn, bitterness, unprovoked malignity, gratuitous desire of ill, ridicule of whatever was good and holy, all awoke to tempt, even while they frightened him. And his encounter with old Mistress Hibbins, if it were a real incident, did but show his sympathy and fellowship with wicked mortals and the world of perverted spirits. He had by this time reached his dwelling on the edge of the burial ground, and hastening up the stairs took refuge in his study. The minister was glad to have reached this shelter without first betraying himself to the world by any of those strange and wicked eccentricities to which he had been continually impelled while passing through the streets. He entered the accustomed room, and looked around him on its books, its windows, its fireplace, and the tapestried comfort of the walls, with the same perception of strangeness that had haunted him throughout his walk from the forest dell into the town and thitherward. Here he had studied and written, here gone through fast and vigil, and come forth alive, here striven to pray, here borne a hundred thousand agonies. There was the Bible, in its old rich Hebrew, with Moses and the prophets speaking to him, and God's voice through all. There, 
On the table, with the inky pen beside it, was an unfinished sermon with a sentence broken in the midst, where his thoughts had ceased to gush out upon the page two days before. He knew that it was himself, the thin and white-cheeked minister, who had done and suffered these things and written thus far into the election sermon. But he seemed to stand apart, and I, this former self, with scornful, pitying, but half-envious curiosity. That self was gone. Another man had returned out of the forest, a wiser one, with a knowledge of hidden mysteries which the simplicity of the former never could have reached. A bitter kind of knowledge, that. While occupied with these reflections, a knock came at the door of the study, and the minister said, Come in, not wholly devoid of an idea that it might behold an evil spirit. And so it did. It was old Roger Chillingworth that entered. The minister stood, white and speechless, with one hand on the Hebrew scripture and the other spread upon his breast. "'Welcome home, reverend sir,' said the physician. "'And how found you that godly man, the Apostle Eliot?' "'But methinks, dear sir, you look pale, as if the travel through the wilderness had been too sore for you. Will not my aid be requisite to put you in heart and strength to preach your election sermon?' "'Nay, I think not so.' rejoined Mr. Dimsdale. My journey and the sight of the holy apostle yonder and the free air which I have breathed have done me good. After so long confinement in my study, I think to need no more of your drugs, my kind physician, good though they be, and administered by a friendly hand. All this time, Roger Chillingworth was looking at the minister with the grave and intent regard of a physician towards his patient. But... In spite of this outward show, the latter was almost convinced of the old man's knowledge, or at least his confident suspicion, with respect to his own interview with Hester Prynne. The physician knew then that, in the minister's regard, he was no longer a trusted friend, but his bitterest enemy. So much being known, it would appear natural that a part of it should be expressed. It is singular, however, how long a time often passes before words embody things and with what security two persons, who chose to avoid a certain subject, may approach its very verge and retire without disturbing it. Thus the minister felt no apprehension that Roger Chillingworth would touch, in express words, upon the real position which they sustained towards one another. Yet did the physician, in his dark way, creep frightfully near the secret. "'Were it not better,' said he, "'that you use my poor skill to-night,' Verily, dear sir, we must take pains to make you strong and vigorous for this occasion of the election discourse. The people look for great many things from you, apprehending that another year may come about and find their pastor gone. Yea, to another world, replied the minister with pious resignation. Heaven grant that it be a better one, for in good sooth I hardly think to tarry with my flock through the fitting seasons of another year. But touching your medicine, kind sir, in my present frame of body, I need it not. I joy to hear it, answered the physician. It may be that my remedies, so long administered in vain, begin now to take due effect. Happy man were I, and well deserving of New England's gratitude, could I achieve this cure. I thank you from my heart, most watchful friend, said the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale with a solemn smile. I thank you, and can but requite your good deeds with my prayers. 
A good man's prayers are golden recompense, rejoined old Roger Chillingworth as he took his leave. Yea, they are the current gold coin of the new Jerusalem, with the king's own mint mark on them. Left alone, the minister summoned a servant of the house and requested food, which, being set before him, he ate with ravenous appetite. Then, flinging the already written pages of the election sermon into the fire, he forthwith began another, which he wrote with such an impulsive flow of thought and emotion that he fancied himself inspired, and only wondered that heaven should see fit to transmit the grand and solemn music of its oracles through so foul an organ pipe as he. However, leaving that mystery to solve itself, or go unsolved forever, he drove his task onward with earnest haste and ecstasy. Thus the night fled away as if it were a ringed steed, and he careering on it. Morning came, and peeped blushing through the curtains, and at last sunrise threw a golden beam into the study, and laid it right across the minister's bedazzled eyes. There he was, with a pen still between his fingers, and a vast, immeasurable tract of written space behind him. End of chapter 20. So, a lot happens with Dimsdale in this chapter. Did you... <laughs> I thought this was actually one of Hawthorne's funnier chapters, too. That he really does have funny things happening. You know, the the just the visual you get of Dimsdale, you know, walking up to a group of young children who've just learned how to talk. You know, they're two-year-olds, maybe. And thinking about teaching them bad words. It's so not like him. But then that's kind of the point of this chapter, is he's so not like himself right now. Well, some some literary criticism um, looks at what he's going through and looks at what happens and says, well, this is, his behavior is proof that he has, um, in Hawthorne's world, that he's constructed. He has, uh, on some level, not necessarily sold his soul to the devil in so obvious and Faustian way, but that he's he's made a bargain with the devil. That kind of the deal with the devil moment where you know what you're going to be doing is the wrong thing to do, but gosh darn it, it just seems like such a good thing at the time, even though it's an enormous risk and probably not so good. Um, and of course, we're left thinking, well, Why? I mean, why shouldn't they run away? Why shouldn't they be allowed to be happy? Why shouldn't they go back to England where he'll be able to be a minister to people who need it and um, and be with Hester and his daughter, Pearl? And I think the direction that most of the literary criticism goes is, well, one of the ways it goes is he doesn't deserve it. And Hawthorne has the line in there that a man who's lived two-faced for so long starts to lose track of which face is actually his. The damage he's done to Hester and the damage he's done to himself, you know, not counting the Chillingworth stuff, but the damage that he's done to the both of them is enormous. He never defended her against the elders. He has kowtowed to a society that he seems, according to the last four or five chapters, not to have agreed with. You know, that he, he doesn't, it, the, you know, the irony of the Puritans leaving England for, and I know it's for lots of complicated reasons, we've already talked about that, but in a very generalized way, they leave England to come to a place where they will have religious freedom, 
and then they impose that same order on each other and anyone else who lives there because not everybody who came across was a Puritan and like uh, Dimsdale says the girl the young girl who thought he was so hot she came over she was not part of the church before but you know he used the fact and this one's interesting he uses the fact that he knows she's attracted to him to draw her into the church now you know she he drew her into the church that's good her soul is saved but wow that's kind of a creepy tacky way to do it you know so there's yeah, there's a lot about dimsdale that's going on here that's kind of revealing that when he's finally given an opportunity to be himself this is what he is now the corollary to that and i think the probably the more psychological um, psychologically based argument although i know we have psychologists who listen so feel free to uh <laughs> to tell me i'm wrong but it seems to me that uh, just like with oh i don't know anything you ever say to a teenager you know if you say no they're going to go do it those teenagers of you who are listening <laughs> we know your games so if dimsdale has been living for seven or eight years now um in this enormously repressed environment and and not just an enormously repressed environment but he and hester specifically well he even more so than hester is very specifically repressed nobody except hester knows the truth and chillingworth it's like it's like uh it's like putting goop into your hand and holding it in your fist and squeezing it tightly it's gonna come out between your fingers it just is anytime you try to stamp down on people or restrict um things that should be rights like the right to free speech and things like that it comes out in very interesting and sometimes subversive ways you know look at look at some of the plays that Václav Havel wrote uh during the the um long time of communist rule over his country some of that was extremely subversive stuff subversive against his his own government um when uh was it brecht i think it was brecht someone will correct me if it was not brecht and i will read the correction to you but i think it was brecht gets uh he moves here after world war ii bertolt brecht he's a playwright from germany and uh he he moves here and he's brought to trial before the McCarthy hearings. And one of the senators, I have no memory of who it was, or if it was, in fact, Mr. McCarthy, said, we have documentation here that you have praised the overthrow of the government, that you have, have actually actively subverted a government. Is this true? And he said, yes, I thought it was the right thing to do with the Nazis kind of puts it all into perspective there doesn't it so again it goes back to this idea though that dimsdale has been really well repressed for quite some time and to me it was just a matter of time when this was going to happen that the stuff would start to splooge out from between his fingers or um chillingworth's or society's fingers as it were just to keep that whole metaphor image going i think it was only a matter of time and the fact and the fact that it was only still only in his mind 
that he thought of doing these things, that he's still restraining himself. It's almost sad. I mean, it's impressive, but he's still not being himself. Not that I think, honestly, saying something rude to the girl or teaching bad words to the little kid is really who he is. It's like it's years of repression bottled up that just kind of explodes out. I have a feeling that if he had said all of these things, he'd wake up the next morning and go, oh man, what did I do? And feel really bad about it. Not because of any repression, just because it was a mean thing to do. And, you know, I kind of visualize him in his daily life, had none of this happened, as being basically a nice guy. But that isn't what got to happen to him and to Hester. Poor Hester. He walks away from her, and there she is, all put back together, with Pearl dancing around her. Ugh. Horrible. Poor Hester. <sighs> so, party, right? <laughs> it's hard to do books like this, because at the end you always want to say, Oh, upbeat, upbeat, have a great week. But, wow, that was, that was an interesting chapter, and poor Hester. The next chapter, just to prepare you... Chapter 21 is called The New England Holiday. Now, oh, one of the things I needed to tell you, I have to go back to my footnote, is that um, the election sermon, which is given on this big hoo-ha event, it's delivered on the governor's inauguration day and at the opening of the legislature. So it's an election sermon. It's a big deal. It is state and church melding as one. Um, And it is interesting that Dimsdale didn't want to leave town before he'd given this speech. The speech is basically, you know, upholding everything that he allegedly thinks is wrong with this society. So he's going to go praise it and then check out, which is kind of odd, I think. You know, I mean, dude, if it were me, I'd be like on the ship yesterday Hester, oh God, having to wait that many days. Can you imagine? <gasps> Drama. I mean, it's, it's like, have you, you know, you're going away on a trip and it's a really good trip, like going to London, Bath and Wales with a bunch of craft listeners. And it's two days before and you've already packed and all you're doing is thinking about the day you're going to leave. Can you imagine how much you would have to multiply that by to get to the feeling that Hester and Dimsdale must be living through until their opportunity comes to get on the boat and go. And that's part of what the next chapter is about. So good stuff. Good, good, good stuff. Don't forget 2009 Craft Lit Challenge makes something interesting out of, uh, well, whatever, (laughs) out of something, as long as you incorporate the scarlet A in it somewhere. Uh, That's one thing. And then the second thing is, don't forget, incentives this month, fabricate the sewing book and a Mission Falls kit. I promise you by next time I will have picked one, but you can go look at the pages. I will put that on the show notes for you. And lots of other stuff cooking along. I'm really excited. Lots of good things are happening. So... I think that's it. I think I can let you go now. And I think I can go have dinner. Because it's a little early, actually, for me. 
Normally I podcast late at night, but tonight I'm podcasting earlier, so that's good. Maybe that's why I'm so bouncy and not quite so tired. Who knows? Life is a mystery. Anyway, I hope you have a great week. I hope for those of you who are of the tribe, you have a sweet new year. Happy Rosh Hashanah. And may you be inscribed in the book of life. Have a great week. I will. I'll talk to you in a week. Don't forget to go sign up at the craftlit.com website for the information, email information for the trip to London Bath and Wales. I'm very excited. Talk to you soon. Have a great one. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com or you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.